Uh, friends, this is, uh, this is always an exciting, magnificent, wonderful day. It's kind of like the first day of school, and it's a lot of fun to, to see your old friends. And we've got some new faces here, not new to me necessarily, but new to the study. It's great. And so we're just going to wrap our arms around everybody. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's happy. Um, I do need to say to the new people that this Bible study, in fact, all the Bible studies I teach are exactly like Sunday morning worship. And people have their pew that they always sit in. And so if some, some person walks up to you and just kind of stands beside you and looks at you with not necessarily the most Christian face, it's because you're sitting in, in her chair. And, and God ordained that once you claim a chair, it's yours forever, right? <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. Um, it is, uh, this is an interesting day as well. It is really, really, really hard to believe that it was 18 years ago uh, that some terribly tragic things happened in our nation and in our world. And as most of you know, uh, even though it was on the other coast for the most part, we had uh, two families in particular that were uh, affected directly by this. Dick and Kathy Keller lost their son, Chad, uh, in the, uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, he was on the plane. And then um, Mike and Kathy Malik um, lost several hundred friends. Mike had been the uh, chairman of Cantor Fitzgerald uh, that was on one of the top floors of one of the Trade Center Towers. And so I, I always think of them particularly. And I know all of us have stories about all of that, uh, but certainly we don't want to forget. So I uh, want to include that in our prayer and in our thinking this morning as we get going. So let's come before the Lord for a moment. Almighty God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we gather today as sisters and a handful of brothers in Christ, part of a great family that goes back thousands of years and we know goes into the future that you have prepared. We gather today as those who have felt your call to believe, to trust, to hope, even sometimes in the midst of our doubts. We gather as those who know that we need your forgiveness and your instruction and your inspiration. We gather as those who humbly offer ourselves to your service. We gather as those who want to know you better and want to follow you better. We begin a, a new season of study and we do that in the confidence that you are the God who will lead us into ever more abundant life. As we gather, of course, we remember families and friends and entire nations who 18 years ago were affected by terrible things. But we also remember that you're a God of redemption and a God of hope. And that in the midst of all the terrible things that happen, you still continue to renew and redeem your world. And so it's in that hope and in that faith that we gather. You are with us. We trust that in faith. You speak to us through the words of your scripture, through the inspiration of your spirit, and especially through the example and the teaching and the continuing presence of your son, Jesus, who promised that he would always be with us. We give you these things. We remember these things as we come together now to study, to learn, to share, to pray, to encourage and strengthen each other. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wow. Let's say a few introductory things before we start moving into the Scripture passages. Um, it's always hard to know exactly where to start with this, but there's no bad beginning point, I suppose. We are here for lots of reasons. The primary reason that we talk about, of course, is to study the Scriptures. And so one of the things I always encourage is for you to read the Bible. What a novel idea. <laughs> we have a schedule published for you of the Scripture passages that we're going to be talking about this fall, and as we get closer to uh, the new year, we will have another schedule for everything that will be happening January into May, so that you can be reading ahead if you like. Uh, 
I encourage you to read large portions of Scripture because our style of doing this study now has us looking at passages that we will be talking about on Sunday morning. Uh, we will have several different Scripture passages, sometimes little bits and pieces, sometimes larger pieces. Uh, but it's a good idea to read big pieces of Scripture. And so if there's only a couple of verses or maybe even ten verses, read, read a whole chapter perhaps, okay? Don't worry if you don't understand some things because you're going to continue learning. That's what we're here to do is to, is to learn. Now, a few years ago, we switched our style. Many of you were with us for uh, nearly two decades as we walked through books of the Bible which is a great way to study Scripture. It's, it's, a, it's one of the best ways to study Scripture. But we switched our process uh, partly so that the pastors would have a little more time for study and to do some of the other things that we need to do, partly also because this is a great way to prepare to be here for worship on Sunday morning. Um, it is true, and I will say this from my personal experience as well as that of the long history of scholars that have come before, it's true that you can read a Bible passage once and think you know what it says. And of course, you read it once and it says something to you. But you can read it for the rest of your life over and over and over again, and it will continue to unfold nuances and levels and depths of meaning to you that you never thought were possible. And so um, it is an extremely valid way to dwell with a few passages for a while. And that's one of the values that we uh, lift up now as we engage in this particular kind of Scripture study. There's another value to that, and I'd highlight this for us because when you study a book of the Bible, you're studying a particular portion of Scripture, and you kind of take it as it comes. And not all the books of the Bible are organized all that well, to be honest with you, at least not the way we would organize them. Some are organized better than others. And simply reading one book does not give you the whole picture of Scripture. And so as we are studying different pieces of Scripture as they relate to the sermons, part of our hope is that we are going to study some of the major themes, some of the big topics of what the whole Scripture talks about. And we're going to get a balanced perspective. It's like we're looking at a single point from several different perspectives. And that also is an equally valid way of studying the Scriptures. And you'll see how that begins to play itself out over time. Now, we are dependent to some extent on the wisdom of the person who picked those particular Scriptures for that particular day, the wisdom of that person in saying, these Scriptures relate to these particular topics in this way, and here's how we're going to put them all together. Okay? There are lots of different ways to look at Scripture, but you're basically dependent on what I have picked out for us, uh, for better or for worse. So pray for me. Uh, pray that I did a good job. Pray that I will do a good job as we're looking at more Scriptures, okay? A couple of other things about our study together. It is always appropriate to ask any question that comes into your mind. Now, some questions that come into your mind you might want to reserve for just a private conversation with me, but most questions that come into your mind exist in at least the minds of some other people, and it's a really, really rich experience when we talk about what's going on in your heads as well as when we talk about what's going on in my head, okay? So we're always going to try to have some time for questions or for comments as we go through this process. Now, in a group this size, it's much easier just to listen to one person talking. If it's three or four people around the table, it's easier to have a conversation. And you, of course, have that opportunity for conversation in your small groups afterwards. But we will try to have some of that conversation among ourselves as well. Does that all make sense to you? Okay, I don't know that I need to say a whole lot more about it. Um, uh, most of you are experienced in all of this, and I don't anticipate a, a major change in the way that we have been doing things. If you have any questions about any of the technical details or any of the process or any of that, uh, feel free to talk with me or to talk with Terry or Catherine or any of the other folks who've been around, okay? Um, the way I approach church, the way I approach everything in church is that we're just one big happy family. And a, in a big happy family, you should feel completely comfortable, completely at ease in being with each other and just kind of enjoying the experience. Does that make sense? Actually, this gathering is larger than the church I grew up in. Uh, so you're kind of intimidating, actually. No. <laughs> All right. Now, 
I want to introduce to you, and this is important, I want to introduce to you, those of you who have been in worship have heard a little bit of this already, but it bears repeating because we forget everything we hear, don't we? You know, they say when you look in a mirror, when you look at yourself in a mirror, once you walk away, you start to forget what you looked like. Now, for me, that's a blessing, but it, it you know, we hear something and we start to forget. Through this year, this program year, starts September 1, ends the ends of August as far as we're concerned. Through this program year, we're going to be focusing uh, on some of the major themes of our faith, and we have a little phrase that we've put together, we meaning the, the pastors and the ministry leaders and the, the elders, a little phrase that we've put together to kind of shape our thinking. And that phrase is this, one village following Jesus into the future, okay? That's what we're looking at. We are one village following Jesus into the future. And we're going to kind of uh, divide our, our sermon studies and our Bible studies into thirds. So this first third, more or less, of the year, this fall, we're looking at that theme of one village. And then we'll be talking about following Jesus, not that we aren't always talking about following Jesus, we are, but we'll be talking about following Jesus after the first of the year, and then as we get on into spring, we'll be talking about going into the future, and all of that will become more clear to you why we're, we're having those conversations. But it seemed to uh, us, as we were discussing last spring, that one of the big issues that you and I live with today in our personal relationships, in our family relationships, and then expanding out into the whole human community on the face of the planet, seven and a half billion of us, one of our big issues is that we have a hard time getting along with each other. Would you agree with me on that? And so one of the big issues of Scripture is about how we get along with each other. And so we're going to be talking about our unity, our community. And we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture passages that talk about that and talk about that issue within the broader context of Christian faith that is expressed biblically to us. So if you're ever reading a particular passage of the Scripture, or if you're thinking about it, think back to that theme, and it will help you understand why we're looking at that piece of Scripture. Now, all of these Scriptures say lots of things about a lot of things. I could preach an entire year probably on just this one little passage from Matthew, Matthew 28. I won't do that. We might get bored after a while, but there's enough rich stuff in there. And so there's going to be a lot of other things we'll talk about, but that's kind of our organizing theme, okay? Does that make sense to you? So what I'd like to do, I want to read the Matthew passage for us, and then we're also looking at 1 Corinthians, uh, a couple of passages there, uh, and then ask for some of your thoughts about that, and then we'll start a conversation. Does that make sense? Here we go. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I dare say all of you have heard this before. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came. And said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sound familiar to everybody? We read this pretty much at every single baptism that we do. Uh, in, in our church at least. So, the Great Commission. How many of you have heard that? That's the, the name that's given to this passage, the Great Commission. Let's just, let's start by thinking about it in this way. This is often the way I think about Scripture passages as I begin to study them. What are the big themes, the big affirmations, the big proclamations, the big questions, the big stuff that's talked about in this passage? Name some of them for me. Going out, right? Jesus said, go out. What else? Teach. Teach. Oh, Jesus, see, we're doing what you said. He's not up on the roof. I do it, never mind. <laughs> what else? Say it again. Some doubted, okay? Yes. Everyone. Who said everyone? We got everyone. Yes. Baptism. He told them, I own everything. Yeah, what else? 
Authority, yes, the authority. All nations, all nations. Yeah, yeah, good. That's a great start into that. That's a great… There, see, there's a lot of big stuff here, right? That shouldn't surprise us because of where this passage occurs in the gospel according to Matthew. How many of you learned this, that when you write something, when you write a paper, that it's really important to get the beginning right and to get the ending right? How many of you learned maybe in high school or in college that the way you read a book is to read the beginning and to read the end of every chapter and the beginning and the end of the book, and you don't have to read all that other stuff in the middle? <laughs> it's kind of true. Now, it might not work with, you know, uh, with a... a, a a novel or, you know, some fiction stuff, but if you're reading heavy, serious texts, textbooks, you can pretty much understand what the book is going to say simply by doing that. Well, Matthew is very clear, all the evangelists really are, Matthew especially so, in saying at the very beginning of his book about Jesus and at the end of his book about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus was doing, and why that's important to us right? What's, what happens at the beginning of Matthew? We got the stories of the birth of Jesus, right? A long genealogy that tells us how important Jesus is and where He's coming from, and then the stories of His birth and the angel telling us about who He is, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, and now here at the end, we have a few verses that also say some incredibly important things to us. Let me walk us through this just a little bit, right? If a question pops up in your mind, don't hesitate to shout it out. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Why is it eleven? Judas is gone, right? To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. What mountain was it? One of the best ways to study Scripture is to read along a little bit and ask a lot of questions about things that are not clear. It's not clear here what the mountain was. Maybe it was just a mountain. You know, maybe it was their favorite picnic spot. Who knows? Scholars want to look at that, and people are very curious, went to the mountain. Why would Jesus be concerned about meeting the disciples in Galilee and at this particular mountain, right? Jesus ended His earthly ministry, more or less, in Jerusalem, right? That's where the disciples first encountered the risen Christ. John and, Mark, or John and, and Luke seem to kind of indicate that it's in Jerusalem and in that region where the disciples had their final encounters with Jesus. Matthew and Mark lead us to think that Jesus had His final encounters with the disciples in Galilee. Jesus went back to where He started. Some people will say, well, therefore the Bible is not true. You can't trust it because there are different versions of the story. That's not important to us particularly because everybody has different versions of the same story, right? Every single one of you could walk out of this room an hour from now and tell a slightly different version of what happened here, okay? That's just the way that works. So we've asked this question. Jesus says, go to Galilee, go to the mountain. Actually, mountains all throughout the book of Matthew play an important role. Can you think of some other things that happened in Jesus' life and ministry that were associated with mountains? The Sermon on the Mount is the big one, right? There was the Mount of Transfiguration, right? There was the mountain where uh, Jesus uh, uh, talked with uh, uh, Peter about who the real Christ was. There are several times that mountains are important. Yes? What mountains were those? The Mount of Transfiguration, you can go to Israel, and I forget the, the modern name of it, uh, but there, there is a mountain area where, by tradition, uh, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah, and the disciples witnessed that. Remember when He turned brilliant light, okay, the transfiguration? Uh, it was on the, the, uh, the, the foothill mountains uh, in the north of Israel um, where uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm, I'm trying to remember... Uh, I can't remember the name of that region right now. At any rate, that's happening more and more, by the way. Yeah, my name is Jack, I think, at any rate. So, yeah, lots of things go on with mountains. Now, if you go further back into the history of Israel, important things happen on mountains, right? Moses goes up Mount Sinai. That's the, that's the big-time mountain, right? But Matthew has spent a lot of his uh, story time telling us about the Sermon on the Mountain. 
And many people believe that Matthew told the disciples, go back to that very same place. I'm going to meet you there again. And a lot of what Jesus says here has reinforced or reinforces what Jesus said to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? I tend to believe that theory. It would make perfect sense that in that first uh, great uh, discourse from Jesus about who God is, what God is doing in the world, who we are, who we are not, who we are meant to be, how we are supposed to live, basically the sum total of everything important about your life, that Jesus wants to come back to that place to remind the disciples, the original 11, of what everything is all about. Does that make sense to you? So they go back to the mountain, to Galilee, right? And they see Him and they worship Him, but some doubt. Right? Somebody mentioned the worship and the doubt. It's very clear, the, the gospel, all the gospel stories are very clear in telling us about the human response of the disciples to the resurrected Jesus, right? How many of you sometimes have a hard time believing that the resurrection actually happened? Or how many of you know other people who simply do not believe it at all, right? It's a simple fact that it, the, the fact of the resurrection, even though we can call it a fact of a resurrection, is really hard to get our minds wrapped around because that's not the experience that we have. When we experience someone's death, they're dead and gone. That's it, Right? And so the Bible's very honest about this human response of the disciples. Of course, there's Doubting Thomas, the famous Doubting Thomas, right, who had the honesty to say, Jesus, I'm not so sure about this stuff. (laughs) That's okay to say that. It's okay to say, I'm not so sure about this stuff. In fact, if you do not admit the doubts that you have, you will never seriously deal with the questions that our doubts raise for us. And I would say that your faith is not as mature It's not as well developed, it's not as well thought out if you don't answer all those questions or at least struggle with all those questions. Does that make sense to you? So they worship and they doubt. They're still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what's going on and what it's all about. And that will continue. There's a lot of the letters of the New Testament, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that talks about how it is that we struggle with our doubt. At any rate, Jesus is going to have his conversation with the disciples. Jesus comes and says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What does that mean? He's the boss. He's the boss. (laughs) What part of all don't you understand, right? Yeah. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, I dare say that many people in this room exercise some version of authority in your lives, do you not? Okay, how many of you, this is going to be terribly sexist, but if you're new to this, you're just going to have to get used to it. How many of you exercise authority over the person to whom you're married? (laughs) Yeah, some of you are very honest about that, right? No. Right? We, We have a retired judge sitting here among us, right? There's a certain authority that a judge has, of course. Everybody has some version of authority, right? Some have more authority than others. Who has all the authority? Jesus. Jesus. We look at this phrase that Matthew repeats for us that Jesus said as one of the most important things that is said in the Scriptures. It's what we call, theologians would call a Christological statement, I'm always trying to give you words to impress your friends with, and that's one of those words, Christological, okay? Later on today, when you go out to lunch or whatever, you're you're on the golf course with your friends, say, we were having a Christological discussion this morning in church. (laughs) Christological simply means we're talking about who Jesus is, the study of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, of the Christ, Okay? We've said this before many times, we will always say it. One of the biggest questions that the Scripture asks and then answers is, who is Jesus? The way you answer that question makes all the difference in the world. Either Jesus was a really nice guy who got into trouble because he tried to help folks out, and he got killed, and some people didn't want to believe it, so they said he was still alive again, but really all he was was just a nice guy. 
or Jesus was a really nice guy who, through some magic tricks, was able to pull off some interesting things, but he was kind of deluded and misguided about who he really was, and it all ended and it was done. Or Jesus is who Jesus said he was. If Jesus is who Jesus said he was, and who the church said he was and is, if he is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Where else is there in creation other than heaven and earth? Can you think of someplace else? There ain't no place else. There's here or there's there. It's everywhere. All authority everywhere is mine. If that's who Jesus is, then hadn't we better deal with it? <laughs> right? Hadn't we better deal with it? That's part of the emphasis of this statement. Jesus shows up, it's after the resurrection, some are doubting what's going on, but there He is, He says, it's me. He's the only one that gets to say that. It sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's only arrogant if it's not true. We believe it is true. So, what does Jesus say? All authority is mine. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at that phrase very carefully. Go, therefore. Some people take that to mean that anyone who follows Jesus is going to go somewhere other than where they are, right? Um, and, and that makes sense for some people, right? The great missionary impulse. I have family. You have perhaps family or friends who have gone from wherever they were, they've gone someplace else to talk about Jesus, okay? But did Jesus want everybody to pick up and move somewhere else? That doesn't make any sense, does it? The sense of the Greek here is actually what Jesus says, as you go, as you live your life, wherever that happens to be, whatever you happen to be doing, as you live your life, here's what I want you to do. What do you think Jesus might have said? Jesus says, make disciples. What else could He have said? Jesus does not say go preach or go teach. Go serve. go serve. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things Jesus could say. What Jesus said is make disciples. Turn other people into the kind of people that you are. And that actually covers everything else that happens in the Christian enterprise. I would contend that the single most important job of any Christian is to make disciples of other Christians. And that in doing that, we cover everything else. Obviously, when you go to make a disciple, you have to tell somebody about Jesus, right? That's what preaching and teaching is, is just telling people about Jesus. You know, I've met Jesus and this is what Jesus means in my life. You might think about Jesus in your life too, right? Making disciples means learning to live the way that Jesus said to live. If you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is on the same place perhaps. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about how we are meant to live, not go to heaven. There's very little in the Sermon on the Mount about this is your insurance policy to get to heaven. This is how you get it. It's about how you live here and now. And that's what Jesus talked about mostly with the disciples. Here's how you live here and now. And so that encompasses serving and loving and everything else that the church does, everything else that individual Christians do. We're meant to make disciples. That's what this church is about, ultimately, is the business of helping all of us be better and better disciples and welcoming us into that, right? Now, Jesus says, what, what are you going to do as you make disciples? You teach people to observe some translations say, obey everything that I've commanded. Now, this might seem to be making too big a point of it, but Jesus does not say, go and tell people about me so that they will believe in me. He says, go and tell people about me and teach them about me so they will live the way I have taught you to live. We've talked a lot in here about the difference between believing in Jesus or believing Jesus. If you, you can believe in Jesus, I believe in all kinds of things that have no impact whatsoever on my life. But if I believe Jesus, 
I believe, I trust, therefore I change my life to live according to the, to the truth that Jesus taught, right? If Amy said to me today, if Amy said to me, Jack, uh, you had better step away from this spot in the fellowship center because the ceiling's about to fall on you, okay? I could say, Amy, I believe in you. You're an amazing person. You're incredible. That's so cool. And I can stand here and let the ceiling fall on me. Or I can believe Amy that the ceiling is about to fall on me and I'm going to move. Do you see that difference? Everything Jesus says here is about what we teach other people to do. And we can only teach what we ourselves have learned, right? So there's a huge emphasis on obeying Jesus, on doing what Jesus said to do. Teach them to observe all this, and then do that with all nations. Somebody talked about all, right? All the nations. The word here is ethne in the Greek, which uh, usually is translated as the Gentiles. Here's another interesting conversation. Do some of you remember back earlier in the story that Matthew tells, before Jesus, you know, is tried and crucified and all that stuff, before that happens, Jesus took 70 of his followers and he sent them out two by two. And he said, go out among the children of Israel and tell them what you have seen and what you have heard in my ministry and do the same things. And so they go out for a while and then they come back and say, wow, it works sometimes, Jesus, but it's hard. He says, yeah, you got to learn some more. Do you remember that story? Go back and read Matthew 9 and Matthew 10. That's where the story is. Now, in that story, Jesus says, go to the children of Israel. Go to the Jews. Don't go anywhere else, Jesus says. Now, he says, go everywhere else. Why do you think Jesus would say initially to the 70, just go to the Jews? Why would he say that? Have any, any thoughts? They're familiar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The Jews should already know all the stuff that, the, that these disciples of Jesus are going to talk about because really all that Jesus was talking about was what true Judaism is, right? This is what the Father wants. This is what we've been trying to teach all along. This is what Moses and the prophets and all the rest were talking about. I think, I think what Jesus was doing um, was simply giving the disciples an experience of sharing the message with the people who should have heard it, and many did hear it, of course. They were, they were the easiest sell. Okay, I don't know why I think of this. Did any of you ever sell knives? <laughs> Have any of you ever been sold knives? Ah, yeah, see, right? You know, when, when you sign up to sell those ridiculously expensive knives, who's the first person you go see to try to sell knives? Your grandmother. You go to see your... Don't you? Right? That's what Jesus was saying. Go see the family and talk about this. Okay, that's all well and good. Now, though, it's not that we're getting more serious, but now we're talking about what Jesus' real mission is in the world. Go to everybody. Go to everyone. Here's another one of those all words. Is there anybody on the face of the planet earth who should not hear the gospel about Jesus? Everybody should. Everybody has that opportunity, we hope. Now, it's still true, they say, out of the seven and a half billion people on earth, that there are, there are maybe as, as many as a billion who've never actually even heard about Jesus. I know we find that very hard to believe, but the rest of the world is not like here. <laughs> and so that mission impulse continues. Jesus says, go tell everyone and then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. How, let's talk about baptism for a second. How many of you um, were baptized um, by being dunked in water somehow or other? We have some... some some folks that were dunked here. Okay. How many of you were baptized when maybe the priest took you and, and dunked you as a baby into the water? Anybody been baptized that way? That's an old Orthodox way of doing it. How many of you were sprinkled with a few drops on top? Yeah, yeah. You're probably Presbyterian, right? <laughs> Presbyterians come, descend from Scottish people, and we're very, we're very um, careful about the resources we use, shall we say, right? <laughs> Interesting conversation. 
How many of you grew up in churches that said our version of baptism is the only real version of baptism? I know that many of you did, right? And at one point, most churches, most denominations at some point kind of said that. Our version is the only version, right? Does Jesus say here, go dunk everybody? Does he say, go sprinkle everybody? No. What does he say? Baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay? Many people don't realize that baptism itself is not a uniquely Christian ritual. Okay? Other peoples, other religious groups, other ethnic groups have practiced the act of baptism. Okay? Yes? No. No. Now, we know that most early versions of baptism, people were baptized in the river, they dunked in the river, okay, or dunked in a lake, all right? But remember, there's one story of Philip who, who is going along the side of the road, and he meets up with an, with an Ethiopian official, a eunuch, the, 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 the basically assistant to the Candace, an, an African pr uh, princess, and, and Philip witnesses too. He tells this Ethiopian what the Ethiopian is reading about. He's reading Isaiah, and then Philip tells him about Jesus, and the Ethiopian comes to faith in Jesus, and there's a puddle on the side of the road, and the Ethiopian says, what's to prevent me from being baptized right now? Okay, well, I doubt that the puddle was deep enough to dunk the Ethiopian guy, okay? And it was probably even kind of muddy, okay? But still he was baptized, right? The, the way a person is baptized is immaterial in Scripture. There's no way you can prove it has to be this way instead of that way. What is material is what Jesus said about baptism. And what does He say? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Okay? That is the, has become the church's shorthand way of describing or identifying whom we believe to be the one true God. Now, who else, where else do we read about baptism in the New Testament? John the baptizer. We call him John the Baptist. That's not actually the, the, the correct translation. It's John the baptizer, the one who was baptizing. John was not baptizing people in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit because there wasn't no son yet, <laughs> Right? Some of you have been to Israel, you've been perhaps to the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, okay? It existed a hundred years before Jesus. They had, they have, I've been there, they have a, a kind of a big swimming pool sort of area. Every day they would practice a ritual cleansing of themselves. What's unique about Christian baptism is it, is it is an entry into the life of following and believing and knowing the one true living God whom we identify as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what makes a Christian is one who is doing those things, okay? Teaching them everything that I've commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That Greek really is more about, I'm with you for all the rest of all the days that are ever going to happen. There's an emphasis on forever. And what? I am with you. Okay? Did you notice in my prayer earlier, I talked to Jesus? Some people think I'm crazy. You know, try that out in public someday. Just talk with Jesus for a while. They'll, they'll certify that you're crazy. But what did Jesus say? I'm with you. Jesus is here right now. Exactly how that works, I have no clue. That's Jesus' problem. He's the one that's got all authority, but I believe Him, right? Jesus says to the disciples, as you live your lives, make disciples of other people. Here's how you do that. Teach them to observe, to obey, to, to live by the way I have taught you to live. Baptize them into this new relationship with the one true living God, and I'm with you in that. Jesus is actually the one who's doing the ministry of the church. Have you ever thought about that? People call me a minister. I am the one only who tells people what Jesus is doing. That's my job. That's your job too, okay? I get paid so that I can do it full time and spend more time with that. You don't get paid for that necessarily, but you're still supposed to do that. 
That's what our job is. This is Matthew's last recollection, the last story, the last thing that Jesus says to the disciples, according to Matthew, that the most important thing we're going to do with our lives is, introducing, is introduce people to the living Lord and Savior. Pretty important, isn't it? Now, let's fast forward just a little bit. We've got another passage to look at. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 4 to 16, and then verses, uh, verse 13 of chapter 12. Let me just read through this for us. Remember Paul? This is now probably at least 20, maybe even 30 years uh, after Jesus has physically exited the scene and people have taken Jesus seriously and they've told other people they're making disciples. Now Paul is writing to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in Him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful. By Him you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters." What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And then verse 13 of chapter 12, For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Okay. Now, you might be getting... What, what, is, what is Paul trying to get at? What's the big issue that Paul is talking about with the Corinthians here? Say it again. We're the same in Christ. Yes. Okay? Right at the get-go in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, what is your problem? You're fighting with each other. You're not getting along with each other. And the rest of his letter to the Corinthians talks about that issue in one way or the other. Right? They're not getting along. He describes it in some detail. Apparently, some of the different groups in the church were saying, well, you know, I first learned about Jesus from Peter, and, and the way Peter talks about Jesus is the only way to understand Jesus. Or I learned about Jesus from Apollos. We know Apollos because he's mentioned in the book of Acts. Apollos was from Alexandria. He was a Jew who had become a believer in Jesus, and he knew the Scriptures. He was a great teacher. And, and some said, well, no, we, we like Apollos' way of thinking about things better. Some people said that about Paul. We like Paul's way, right? Paul says, forget all that. It's not about who the teacher is. It's not about the individual leader in the church. Who's it about? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And then he reminds them, the Corinthian Christians, that they were baptized into Jesus into the one true living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul says there's one baptism, right? So that's where we're going to be talking Sunday a little bit more, and we can talk and hear a little bit more about this issue of our community, of our fellowship, right? I happen to know that there are some people in this room right now who are not actually Presbyterians, We're praying for your eternal souls. No. <laughs> How many of you were born Presbyterian, have always been Presbyterian, always will be Presbyterian, if that's your prayer? Anybody here? I'm one of the few. Right? Yeah, there's a handful of us. Yeah. How many of you have been involved in at least 
let's say, obviously, if you didn't start Presbyterian, now you're here in this Presbyterian church, whether you remember or not, you're here on a Wednesday, that's okay. How many of you have been involved in at least three other denominations of some kind? Okay, how about four? Okay, how about five? Okay, six? Okay, yeah, that's, that's really become very typical of us in this country. Today, we don't think about that issue a whole lot in Western Christianity. But I can remember a time, and many of you can remember a time, when in whatever little town you grew up in, it was unthinkable for a Catholic to marry a Protestant. Or the other way around. Right? We, we are now the, I would call us the beneficiaries of the great ecumenical movement that swept across Western Christianity, at least, in the middle of the 1900s. But we need to remember that for most of Christian history, the church has been divided against itself, and it still is. It still is in many different ways. There are some 35,000 denominations in the world today. 35,000. Some of that is because we call the Presbyterians in America a separate denomination from the Presbyterians in Scotland or the Presbyterians in Switzerland or wherever else there are Presbyterians. Okay, so that give, they're still kind of part of the same family, right? We got Presbyterians in, in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, okay? So that's, that's some of the reason for the 35,000. But if you even take that into consideration, there are still at least 10 or 12,000 different denominations. Most are pretty small, right? Roman Catholics account for the, the vast majority. But even within Roman Catholicism, you have lots of variation of the way it's expressed and played itself out. Now, that's just within the church, of course, all those differences within the church. And most Christians, most places, I think, don't think a whole lot about the fact that, you know, maybe Presbyterians are going to hell or Eastern Orthodox folks are going to hell if they're not in our denomination, whatever that is. But the divisions are still there. How does Paul take us back to our fundamental unity in the church? He does so by reminding us of what Jesus said. One baptism, one faith, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior, one, one, one. That's it. The rest makes for interesting conversation. You know, the differences between the way Presbyterians worship or Catholics worship or whoever, there's lots of different conversations we can have about those things. But fundamentally, we're all the same. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Let's talk about this a little bit. What questions does this bring up? What observations do you have? Not necessarily just about the unity of the church, but about, but about all the other things that are talked about here. Yes? I think it can cause confusion for people that aren't Christian or don't understand Christianity, that it's confusing when different people say they're Christian, but they say you have to do it this way. Yeah, 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 good point. It is confusing to people outside the church. Frankly, it's confusing to people inside the church some, right? When, when someone outside the church says, well, well, okay, you say you're a Christian, but then you say one, one person says, I have to do it this way. The other one has, says, I have to do it that way. So there's a lot of people that say, if you don't do Christianity our way, you're not Christian at all. You're darn right it's confusing because fundamentally it's wrong, okay? Here's a piece of history for you. I talked about the great ecumenical movement, right? Ecumenical comes from the Greek word oikumene, which means worldwide, all right? An interesting thing happened in Western Christianity, especially in Protestant Western Christianity, starting in the late 1800s, but then picking up speed in the early 1900s. And that was that the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the United Church of Christ and the Baptists and all these different denominations from the rich West, from Western Europe and from the U.S. primarily, started going into Africa and into Korea and into South America and all these places and preaching about Jesus, okay? And so this is going to be very stereotypical. I don't want to offend anybody, but, but here you have somebody sitting in, in, in their little village somewhere in a very remote part of the world, 
and there's four missionaries knocking on their door. Hi, I'm the Presbyterian missionary. Let me tell you about Jesus. Hi, I'm the Methodist missionary. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, we're all part of the same church. Well, how come there's four different ones of you? And how come some of you sprinkle? And how come some of you dunk? And how come some of you use wine at communion? And some of you don't do that? Da, 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 da. You see the problem? The missionaries came back to their home churches in the West and said, folks, we have a problem. And of course they were right. And, and it was that, that uh, message that was coming back to the, the Western, powerful, rich, primarily Protestant church, also happened in Catholicism. It was that message that came back that said to people here, we got to get our act together. We got to quit being so divided. Isn't that fascinating? And it still is an issue for the church today, completely and totally. It's one of the reasons we took the word Presbyterian out of our name that we use here. We are still very Presbyterian, okay? But to everybody else, we're, we're, we're the village church. We'll talk about the Presbyterian bit later on. Yeah, cool. Yes, back here. Since Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, and we do not have a particular way such as using water by authority, person of authority. Uh, what does that mean to us as individuals? Does that mean that when we go and bring the good news to someone, uh, how does that connect with us going out to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's see if, if I get your question right. Yeah. We say, go baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? In the church, we say it's got to be a minister who does the baptism, right? Can just anybody, quote, just anybody, go do, a, go do a baptism or whatever? Do we have to do it a particular way? All of that good stuff. Um, what most denominations have said, and this is true of, of Presbyterianism, what we have said is that we believe that, it is, that baptism is such an important ritual, because it, it is about such an important spiritual reality, that we want to be sure that baptism is done appropriately and correctly, okay? Therefore, we are going to require that any real baptism that's done in the name of the Presbyterian Church be done by those who are trained and those who are specially set aside for that purpose. Does that make sense to you? It's like saying, if you're, going to, if you're going to go to a brain surgeon, let's find somebody who's actually been trained in brain surgery and certified in brain surgery, and that, we'll let that person do brain surgery, okay? Now, some of you say, look, this isn't brain surgery. Anybody can take a kid or an adult and dunk them or sprinkle them and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And of course, that's true. But the denominations have said it's so important that this, that this be kept within the bounds that Jesus established that we're going to reserve it for those who are ordained. Now, I, I know plenty of folks who are not ordained pastors in any sense who have baptized other people. Maybe it's a unique circumstance or whatever. And, and I don't think, I don't think that, that God is terribly upset one way or the other about that. But I always am interested in the fact that if somebody is going to be baptized, that they understand what it is if they're an adult, or if they are parents of a, of a, a child, that those parents understand what it is, that, that everyone has received appropriate instruction, and that the baptism itself has been conducted in such a way that it would honor what Jesus had to say. And so that's why there's that emphasis for us. Um, I... There's another question about baptism that people sometimes ask. It's kind of related to your comment, Barbara. Um, almost every denomination believes that, that baptism happens only once, okay? Now, I say almost every denomination because there are, other, there are some denominations, Catholicism, some, some versions of the Baptist church, uh, and not just the Baptist, but others, who will say that unless you are baptized by us, you're not baptized, and so if you want to convert, say, from Presbyterianism to, to some other denomination, some people will say, well, I don't care about your Presbyterian baptism. It wasn't valid. You've got to be baptized our way, okay? Now, I say that that's theological horse hockey. Uh, if you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, period, you are baptized. 
Presbyterians accept everybody else's baptism if it is baptism, Christian baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I, I counter people sometimes, and, and you yourself might have been baptized again, right? That happens, that's a great uh, uh, industry in Israel at the Jordan River. You have tons of Christians coming to the Jordan River, right? To the site perhaps where, where Jesus was baptized by John, and they get rebaptized. Well, no. If I've been baptized, if I have entered into the faith and life of Jesus Christ, if I've gone through everything that baptism means, that only happens once, right? It doesn't happen again. Now, some of you may have done that. I'm, I'm, I'm not upset with you, but it's, under, it's important we understand what baptism is. It's like you're saying, I joined up as a Christian, and then I rejoined, and then I joined again. I, no, you've either joined or you haven't. Now, many, uh, many folks go through a ritual that is called a, a remembrance of baptism or, or, a, or a, a reaffirmation of your baptism in some sense. You're not being rebaptized. You're just remembering what your first baptism and your only baptism was all about. Does that make sense? The fact then that Jesus went to be baptized by uh -huh. John, is, that's where the uh, ritual of water all started? Yeah, now... The history of baptism in the church is a little bit murky, right? Jesus was baptized by John, okay? Um, and there's a lot of conversation about if anybody did not need baptism, it's got to be Jesus, right? How does Jesus get baptized into Jesus? Well, the ritual of baptism is a ritual that says you are buried to an old life as you are dunked in the water. You are resurrected to a new life as you are brought up out of it. That's one place where dunking as the, the symbolism and the imagery is a little bit better than the sprinkling business. Nobody ever drowned with the three drops of water that Presbyterians use, right? Um, so baptism is dying to an old life, rising to a new life. It is, it is a washing and cleansing of sin, okay? You're being washed as well. Those are the three primary symbols of baptism. Did Jesus need any of that? No. Baptism, though, is also a ritual of identification with if you are baptized, theologically we say that you are identified now as a member of the Christian family, a member of the family of God. And many folks believe that that's why Jesus went to John to be baptized, to be identified as a member of the family of God. That, that's the best answer that I've ever heard to that. It, it's still, it's one of those questions that we'll always talk about. It's a great question to ask, though. Yeah. Yeah, Susan. I grew up in the Congregational Church. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a Presbyterian church I'm in sorry. town. No. Um, but I remember all my brothers and sisters being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh huh. So when did spirit change, or was it always spirit? And you know, what's the what's the Holy Ghost? That that's a matter of of language and interpretation. Ghost and spirit mean the same thing. All the old language, all the, all, the, all the original translations from the Greek and the Hebrew and then later on the Latin, all the original English translations translated spirit as ghost because ghost meant spirit, right? We've kind of been corrupted uh, by Halloween perhaps. <laughs> I love Halloween, but that's another story. But, but, you know, we think of a ghost as something else. When we said the ghost, that, that means the spirit of a person. That's all that means, Yeah. The original English translations of the, the Apostles' Creed, for instance, use Holy Ghost. We've, we've changed that to spirit now because ghost is a little bit weird in the way people think about it now. Yeah, yeah, good question. Yes? Okay, a date when we started baptizing babies. That's a good question to ask. Many denominations have argued about whether you should only baptize adults who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, okay? Some denominations baptize infants who don't even know what's going on yet, okay? Roman Catholicism, for instance, baptizes infants. Presbyterians baptize infants. That question is actually begins with a, with a conversation not about baptism, but about what it means to come to faith in Jesus. How does that happen, okay? On the one hand, what we see happening in Scripture and in the early church is that obviously adults hear about Jesus, and they decide to follow Jesus, right? Then they are baptized. 
However, we also see stories in the Scriptures. And the best example that I can think of is when Paul goes to Philippi and he preaches there, and there's a woman named Lydia. She's a wealthy businesswoman. She deals in purple, the, the dye, purple dye, okay. And we are told that Lydia believes, and Lydia and her entire household are baptized into Christian faith, okay? That word entire household means everybody, women, children, men, everybody. And so it's clear that early on in the church, sometimes people were baptized who didn't really yet know about Jesus, okay? That baptism, when we baptize in that way, part of what we're saying is that there are different ways that a person comes to faith in Jesus, or that coming to faith in Jesus is about more than just making your own personal decision as an adult, okay? Now, there are some churches that say, no, that's the only way it happens. But let's talk about how you come to faith, okay? You come to faith partly because you grow up in a context of faith. Now, everybody in this room is old enough now to admit that most of what you are, most of what you believe, most of what you think is what your family taught you, for better or for worse, right? Your family, this is what your family taught you. We believe that Christian faith is something that you are educated into from the very beginning of your life, at least as much as it is something that you decide on your own later. And that's important to say because of how we understand the gift of faith, okay? This is a a huge question. I'm summarizing a lot of stuff. If everything you are is a gift from God because you would not exist without God, then is it not also true to say that your faith is a gift from God? Right? Your faith is a gift from God. God gives that faith to you, if you're lucky, I think, as you are born into a Christian family that teaches you from the very beginning about Jesus. Now, later on, of course, as an adult, you have the option to reject that faith, or we would say to confirm that faith. The classic Presbyterian way of doing it, the the classic Catholic way of doing it, is that when a kid turns more or less 12 years old, more or less the age where they can understand as an adult, that's an open question, of course, but that's what we say at 12, then you confirm, you go through the confirmation process, say, yeah, I, I believe this for myself. And so when we baptize an infant, we have to make sure that the parents are Christian and that they know what baptism is and that they know what Christian faith is because the parents make a promise to teach their children about Jesus. And the whole church makes the promise to teach their children about Jesus. And so some churches continue to argue and say, no, if you were baptized as an infant, you were not baptized. But I think that's a, 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 a too limited way of understanding the nature of our salvation and the nature of how it is that we come to faith. And so therein lies some of the argument, but that's why we baptize infants. By the way, there is not such a thing as infant baptism. There's not such a thing as adult baptism. There is baptism of infants and baptism of adults. It's only one kind of baptism. That might be slicing it too thinly for you. I don't know, but it's important to say that. Yes. Pastor, uh, what I'm getting out of your study right now is fabulous. Thank you so much. And one of the things that I, I think I understood, and correct me if I'm wrong, what Jesus is telling them, like, go and baptize everybody in, in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is, like, make sure you talk about me and that mm-hmm. they accept me. Because before, I don't think he told them, get a bucket of water and just spray it to everybody in the name of Jesus. He's, talk about me and make sure they accept me. That's like, and then when Paul says, um, what do you say? It doesn't matter who baptized you. What matters is that we talk about Jesus. Yes, talk about me, Uh share about me. Now, obviously, early in the church, there was no such thing as ordaining pastors or anything. There were just other people, you know, you you would go and you would baptize people, right? If I was a Christian sharing with you and you said, yes, I've come to faith, then, then I or someone else baptizes you. However, early on in the history of the church, we know 
that leaders were chosen for the church. That's part of what Jesus was doing by choosing the disciples. That, that number was expanded. Later on, the church began to ordain uh, not just pastors or elders, but also deacons. That's a whole nother conversation about the history of how the church organizes its leadership. But fundamentally, every church has said there should be people set aside to make sure that these tasks are, are, are done carefully and correctly and accurately. But every Christian, according to what Jesus says here, every Christian has both the privilege and the responsibility of sharing about Jesus. And I'm the last person to say that if you're on an island somewhere with five people and you're the one Christian who shares Jesus and all the other become Christian, that you better wait for a Presbyterian minister to get there to baptize them. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, let's do another question. Oh, we got to stop. My heavenly days. I get excited about this stuff. I don't know if you do. Okay, we'll go to... Colleen had her hand up and then we'll... Essential to salvation. Is baptism essential to salvation? No. Okay, now there are some who say that it is, right? Ancient Roman Catholicism wanted to say, we better baptize this kid as quick as we can because if it dies before it's baptized, it's going to hell. Okay, let's just say it flat out. That's what the issue and problem was. Our ritual. The words we say and the tap water that we use and the, the pastor who does it, there's nothing magic about that, okay? The magic is the spiritual reality that God loves this child and plans to love this child for this child's entire life. How the child responds is up to that child and God, okay? So I do have people who, you know, towards the end of life say, I've never been baptized. Maybe I'm going to die soon. Maybe I'm going to die, period, so I need to get baptized now. I understand that, but no, baptism is not a requirement, not, not the way we look at it. Yeah, good question, okay? Some of you went, Phew. okay, this is good. <laughs> All right, normally we stop this conversation a few minutes after 10, but this is a very abnormal day, would you agree? Okay, cool. This is great fun. I'll be back with you next week. You've got the passages that we're going to be looking at. The notes that you have have a lot more detail than what we've been able to talk about here. You'll have some more notes that will be sent to you tomorrow about next week, so start reading ahead if you can. If you don't have a chance to do that, don't worry. Show up anyway. Okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for all of this. You're amazing. Amen. Go eat.